I'd like to ask you this morning, what time is it? What time is it? Thank you for the very precise answer, Jill Nugent. (laughs) What time is it? How often do we ask that question? We ask that question, I think, because we want to mark the time, because time so often escapes our control. We wonder how much time we have, only to realize we've lost track of time. We confess that time just seems to fly by, even as we lament together that there never seems to be enough time. We cry out, we need more time, whenever we begin to experience the sensation that our time has run out. What time is it? How to tell time is important. After all, as the saying goes, timing is everything. The right timing affects the outcome of an event. Timing dictates the order in which things happen. It also sets the pace. If we don't pay attention to the time, we can miss things. Crucial details, significant opportunities, surprising invitations, unexpected challenges. What time is it? As we return to the Gospel of Mark today, we might be tempted to believe that Mark doesn't have a lot of time to give us. After all, as you're going to see in just a second, as Bill Woodbury comes up to read to us, that things in Mark, everything in Mark, seems to happen immediately in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark has this tendency to move forward with events at an almost lightning speed. So as Bill Woodbury comes forward to read to us this morning from the Gospel of Mark, I want to invite us to have that question lodged in our mind. The question of what time is it? Hey. All right. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you would uh, take the opportunity, if you're going to use a pew Bible, to turn to page 694, uh, 694. We're going to be looking at uh, Mark 1, 9 through 15. So I'll give you a second to, uh, to look at that. It's 694, right before 695, and right after 693. <laughs> <clears throat> Couldn't resist. <laughs> so helpful. I know. <clears throat> All right. Here, <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bill. Did you notice as Bill read to us from the Gospel of Mark how Mark takes us through three events in Jesus' life in rapid succession? Jesus' baptism, his temptations in the wilderness, and the launch of his public ministry are dealt with, count them, in just six verses. 
By contrast, if you're familiar at all, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, both, they slow down right here. They slow down. They provide more detail regarding Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan. They elaborate on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and actually outline the three specific temptations the devil lays before him. But Mark's gospel does no such thing. And so it doesn't look as if Mark is all that interested in taking time to share the good news with us. But looks can be deceiving. Because you see, as we come, stay focused on those verses that Bill read for us, knowing what time it is, is in fact what's foremost on Mark's mind as he presents his gospel. One of the things that Mark is trying to reveal to us through these few verses is that Jesus began his ministry at the right time. Mark wants us to see the intentionality and purposefulness in everything that Jesus does. Everything throughout his gospel, he wants us to see the intentionality and purposefulness in whatever Jesus does. But it begins here, before Jesus even initiates anything, any of his miracles, any of his teaching, Mark wants us to see a couple of extremely important things that needed to come first. And the first thing that we heard about is that Jesus needed to be baptized. Even though if you were with us last week, John the Baptist previously told us that he was preparing the way for Jesus, that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, Jesus comes to get baptized by John. There's a tension here that Mark just lets speak for itself. In another gospel account, it'll actually be told to us that John will protest. He'll verbally say to Jesus, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Mark lets this tension sort of speak for itself. He doesn't point us to that kind of information because what he's saying indirectly is that while John believes Jesus should baptize him, it's not time for that yet. By going out to the Jordan and being baptized by John, Mark is telling us that Jesus believes it's time for something else. That this is the time, the very beginning, the time for identifying with the people. For making it clear from the start that the way of Jesus is different. Jesus isn't the kind of rabbi. He's not the sort of Messiah who never leaves Jerusalem. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. But he's the Savior and Lord who comes to where we are who goes through the same waters that we're going through. And Mark's emphasis here at the baptism on the right timing of things, the intentionality of events, doesn't stop in the waters of the Jordan. Mark emphasizes for us that immediately, there's that word again, immediately after being baptized by John, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And once again, his account on what happens to Jesus for those 40 days in the wilderness is famously short on detail. In some ways, once again, Mark leaves it to our imagination to fill in the blanks as to what happened there. But beloved, the few details that Mark does give us are evocative in making his point, in letting us know what time it is. Specifically, we're told, did you catch it when Bill was reading, that while Jesus was in the wilderness, he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Lions, Satan, and angels, oh my. It's an odd little thing that Mark points us to. Jesus was with the wild beasts and they did not harm him. Other English translations draw this out a little bit more. Jesus was with the wild beasts and they do not harm him. Now you may be thinking, well, that's because Jesus put him in a headlock, man. You know, he's God. You know, he just got a big old bear hug. So they, you know, they, they were powerless. But I don't, I don't think that's why Mark is telling us this. He's not pointing to giving us visions of, you know, Jesus wrestling animals in the wilderness. No, I think Mark is trying again to tell us what time it is because 
Jesus with the wild beast and not harming him is a very significant way biblically for Mark to tell us the times are changing. What Mark describes here with just a verse briefly is intended, I think, to make us think of words spoken long ago. Words prophesied by Isaiah way back when. And if you're not familiar with those words, they come from Isaiah chapter 11 and they read like this. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw just like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. The snake and the weaned child shall put its hand over the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What time is it? Mark wants us to know it's time for something completely different. It's time for something new. What started in the water, what's being attended to by angels in the desert, what's about to come out of the wilderness is the dawn of a new beginning. It's the fulfillment of a covenant promise. Mark's point, beloved, is the timing of these things that he just goes through very, very quickly. The timing of these events is not accidental. Jesus didn't just arbitrarily find himself in the role of Messiah. At just the right time, he arrived on the scene. Jesus came to just the right place, and he came for just the right task. And in case we miss this, in case it's not a sermon, but we're reading our Bibles on our own, we're reading Mark's word on our own, and we miss this point that he's trying to make, Mark has Jesus tell us it directly. As he writes, when Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Beloved, notice, according to Mark, these are the first words that Jesus says. The time has come. Now, you and I often focus on the last part of what Jesus says here. Repent and believe the good news. And these two things are very important. We'll come back to them next week, but this morning, I'd like to focus on the first part of what Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Particularly what I want to zero in on for us is Jesus' use of the word time. Now, in English, we have one word for time. Time. But it's not so in Greek. In the Bible, there are several different words that are translated as time. And I just want to focus on two of them this morning. These two words for time in the Bible are chronos and kairos. And these two words, the differences between them, they're so insightful for us as we learn how to tell time the way that God does. Chronos. Chronos is where we get the word chronology. Chronos is about measured time. Chronos is the kind of time we calculate in seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days per year, etc., etc., etc. In other words, chronos time is the kind of time that you and I usually think about. The kind of time that we try to keep with our clocks and with our calendars. The kind of time that we try to manage with alarms and appointments that we circle. This is the kind of time the Bible talks about too. In Psalm 90, for example, it's chronos time that Moses is talking about, that Moses asks us to pray with him when he writes, teach us to number our days aright, Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Chronos time is cyclical time. It's morning that turns to night, which then turns to morning, which turns to night. Chronos time keeps moving forward at a steady pace. There's no going back with chronos time. Regardless of what happens, regardless of how we use the time, this kind of time, 
Chronos time continues on in this unalterable pattern. Chronos time is the kind of time that we speak of when we say that time just marches on. Chronos time is the kind of time that we think of when we say that time waits for no one. But thankfully, the Bible has another word for time, kairos. Thankfully, kairos is a different concept of time. Kairos doesn't have anything to do with the passing of time. Kairos time isn't about an hour or a day. Kairos time is about the hour, the day. Kairos is a word for when time becomes more than just day-to-day. Kairos describes, if you will, God's time. God's timing, the opportune and decisive moments. God's time, when our Heavenly Father shows up, it's the Kairos time is those God-in-the-midst-of-us moments. Time stands still in such moments because Kairos time, you see, is appointed time. That's actually what Kairos means, appointed time. It's time that our Father has appointed to show up in our lives to say or do something. So when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, Jesus is talking about kairos time. He's talking about appointed time. He's talking about the time of God breaking into this world, into our lives, and changing everything. Make no mistake, Jesus appeared at a certain time in history where one could mark the calendar and the place. But what Mark wants us to see is more than that, that Jesus' emergence on the scene in Galilee to begin his public ministry was a declaration that everything that he's about to do, his entire life, his death and resurrection, is the fulfillment of one big divine appointment that his father made a long, long time ago. Looking back through the eyes of Peter, Mark wants us to see that Jesus came at the perfect moment, that Jesus came on the scene, that Jesus went to work at the appointed time. You know, what's fascinating about this is that we can go beyond what Mark gives us and Mark can say this to us, emphasize this appointed time, the time has come. And historically, from our vantage point, we can appreciate at an even deeper level how right Mark was, the truth of what Mark was saying. And what I mean is, is if, you will with, if you would with me right now, from where we stand historically, we can truly see that Jesus came in more ways than even Mark speaking about, perhaps, at the right time. That Jesus was, bo- was not born by chance. It was not by pure happenstance that a preacher, a miracle worker, a Messiah out of Galilee came on the scene in 30 AD. Specific events, and that's what I want you to see just really briefly, had aligned in such a way that truly the time was right for his emergence. So if you will, for just a second, take a broader historical view so you can appreciate the truth of Jesus came at the right time. If a would-be Messiah of the Jews were to become the Christ of the Christians, if a would-be Messiah of the Jews were to become the Christ of Christians, honestly, historically looking back, he could only have been born between roughly 50 B.C. and 25 A.D. That's a 75-year window of opportunity for Christianity to spring into business, to being. It couldn't have happened before 50 B.C., and it couldn't have happened after 25 A.D. How do I know this? How can I say this? How can I put this out there? Because historically, we can see, looking back, that those were the years for the time to be fulfilled because four factors came into place that needed to come into place for us to be here, for this movement, for the church to exist. 
those four things are. First, there had to be a collective and strong desire and expectation for a Messiah. The prophets had spoken long ago about a Messiah, and the people paid somewhat of, an, of, a, of attention to it. But if you know your history at all, even outside the silence of the Bible between the Old and the New Testament, after empire after empire destroyed, seemingly destroyed Israel, Israel tried to rally itself together to become a nation on its own. This is the Maccabean period and beyond. And it's this decisive moment that takes place before Jesus arrives on the scene where in the, in the midst of the best attempts that Israel did to rally itself, to almost come back into its, uh, even a shadow of its former glory, that Rome arrives on the scene. One of Julius Caesar's generals, Pompey, conquered Judea for Rome in 55 BC. And when Rome occupied Judea, the Jews suddenly felt broken in a way that they had never been broken before. How many more empires? And Rome didn't look like it was going the way of Assyria and Babylon. Rome seemed to be doing things differently. And in that moment, the Jews rallied. You may have had different conceptions of what that Messiah would be or what that Messiah needed to be, but there became this collective surge, surging, an overwhelming, overpowering desire for a Messiah to rescue and restore them. It rose to a fever pitch, the sense of expectation. That's one. Jesus arrived at a moment when people were looking, different ideas of what it would be, but looking for the Messiah. But secondly, if Jesus had come later, if Jesus had come after 68, between 68 and 72 AD, there'd be nowhere to come to, because if you know your history, the Romans destroyed the Jewish kingdom. Where there had been smatterings left, Rome just basically out and out burned down the temple, just scattered the Jews in a way that they hadn't been before, scattered throughout the known world at that time. And if there's no hub, if there's no Jewish kingdom, there can be no Jewish Messiah who would become a Christ for the Christians. That's two. But the last two are even better. Jesus arrived on, a scene, on the scene at a time when, and this had not yet happened in the world, Greek was the common language of all educated people in the known world at that time. It had begun to happen, but now it had happened that Greek was the common language. You could go to many different parts of the known world and there was a common language being spoken. Understand the significance of this, that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, early Christian missionaries, early Christian disciples could go anywhere and talk about Jesus in Greek and be understood by countless thousands of people. It was unheard of. And finally, the Romans had built a system of transportation for this to happen too. If you know anything, remember anything from history, Rome was known for its roads. Rome had built a solid system of roads throughout the known world at that time. As the saying went, all roads lead to Rome. And this interconnectedness made the known world able to be connected to the sharing of the gospel. Later missionaries could use these roads to travel safely and spread to Judea and Samaria and truly to the ends of the earth. Beloved, unless all four of these factors were in place, Christianity would not have come into existence as we know it. And these factors were only in place for 75 years. So in a way, historically, we can affirm what Mark declares to us. The timing was right. History was ready for Jesus. It was the appointed time as the events had fallen into place in such a way that Jesus could begin his singular ministry of preaching, teaching, and healing. It was Kairos time. 
Why do I keep hitting this? Why am I focusing so much on the idea of time, specifically Kairos time? Because, beloved, understanding the reality of Kairos moments is realizing what Mark wants us to get, not just here, but throughout his whole gospel, is everything our Father does is intentional. Not a second, not a day is wasted. It was a Kairos moment as the time had fully come so that God took on human flesh and sent forth his Son to be among us to save us from ourselves. But that's not the only Kairos time. The truth is, what Mark wants us to get is that Kairos moments aren't the exception. They're the norm for our lives and for our world. And for many of us, we need to hear that because we think God just happens to show up every now and again. That God just happens to say something every so often or purposes to do something. But Mark wants to say, no. God doesn't just occasionally show up and do something. According to his word, God is working all the time. Encountering Kairos moments, beloved, is experiencing the biblical truth that God does indeed make all things beautiful in his time. I guess another way to put this is if you really think about it, eternity is the original time zone. We live in the time zone of Kronos, but Kronos is after Genesis 3 when the world fell apart. But the original time zone, the way that the world was created, the original time zone was eternity. Our Father's reign His sense of time is eternal. And that's what's breaking in to our earth. That original time zone, eternity, is where we're headed. That original time zone, that original conception of time, is the standard by which our lives are measured according to the Bible. Our lives are not measured by Kronos time. Our lives are measured by Kairos time. Are we storing up treasures on earth or in heaven? Are we focusing on the things that last or the things that fall away? Again and again, the Bible is pointing us to tell time differently. Eugene Peterson, writer of many books, translator of the message, puts it this way. The assumption of spirituality is that always God is doing something before I know it. So the task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done but to become aware of what God is doing so I can respond to it and participate and take delight in it. Beloved, as disciples, as followers of Christ, the question that stands before us is, do we know how to tell time? Because for Mark, discipleship is all about knowing what time it is. Because this this is because God rarely does anything in our lives without you or me being receptive and open to him acting in us, upon us, and through us. And you and I can't recognize that a moment is a kairos moment, a God-infused moment, unless we know what to look for in the first place. I've tried to describe to you previously uh, what a kairos, what kairos time is. What I want to try to do now is to give you a simple, easy-to-remember definition of a kairos moment. So here you go. A kairos moment is when God gets our attention. A Kairos moment is when God gets our attention. A Kairos moment is when Jesus interrupts our daily agenda. A Kairos moment is when the Spirit brings an awareness into our minds and our hearts that wasn't there before. A Kairos moment is the realization of a divine opportunity that's before us. A Kairos moment is that indescribable feeling, that inescapable consciousness of the intersection of the things of heaven and of earth. 
Again and again, as we go through Mark, I want you to pay attention to this. We'll hear people in Mark pointing to Kairos moments when they say things like, we've never seen anything like this. What is this? What is this? This is, this is new. This is something new. It's a new teaching and with authority. As God shows up through Jesus, Mark will describe people in the midst of Kairos moments as being amazed, speechless, completely astonished, and afraid. Afraid. Why? Because, beloved, as you're going to see, as we need to experience, when our Father comes a-calling, when Jesus knocks on your door, when the Spirit breaks into your life, things change. Things change. I find there's three ways that we can recognize Kairos moments. We can stumble upon them. We can stumble upon them. I don't know if you're like me, but I have a pretty busy calendar and I have all my appointments in my phone and I check them each day and I have an email that tells me what my day is going to be and I look at that when I get up and I can go through my days where I just kind of go from appointment to appointment to appointment in a very chronological order, you know? And sometimes I stumble upon a Kairos moment. In the midst of just going from one appointment to the next, there comes that aha moment. I'm living in that, in, in that particular day. I'm living in that space of it's just another day. One o'clock, oh, two o'clock, oh, another one at three, get to go home at five. And in my perception of just living just another day, all of a sudden God shows up and God, I stumble upon God revealing to me why this day matters. Why this day exists and I exist in it. Sometimes we stumble upon a Kairos moment. Other times a Kairos moment hits us right between the eyes. Have you ever been hit right here? I, um, I had one of those moments this week. I, I, uh, it, again, just another day, driving the kids to school. I don't know what it's like in your house, driving the kids to school, but I'll tell you what it's like in our house. Most of us are not morning people, <laughs> so we're not very pleasant. And when it's my turn to take the kids to school, we all kind of get in the car and we all have this mutual understanding. Nobody talks. <laughs> Nobody talks because it's early, it's school. And every so often I try to be super dad. No, I want to start, I, son's laughing already, you know. Turn on a little Christian music. Hey, how's your day going to be today? What's going on? And both of my children will look at the laser beam look in their eyes. Will you please stop talking right now? <laughs> Or you just get the one-word answer, fine, yeah. And it was one of those days, you know, just taking them to school, it's tough, it's morning, it's early. And they got out of the car, pulled up to Huntington, and God hit me right between the eyes. It was a Kairos moment. I posted this on Facebook, some of you may have seen this. Because in that moment, and they're tired, I'm tired, and, oh, I'm driving to kids to school, oh, the kids don't talk to me, it's great. And it's, well, I remember the days when they would talk to me all the time going to preschool, but now they can't say a word to me in the car. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> they get out of the car, and I watch them, and I watch them get out of the car, and they're tired. They're tired. It's, they're not morning people. They've been working hard. High school's, high school's tough. And I, and I just, I'm watching them, and all of a sudden, one of them puts the arm around the other, and they, they're walking to face their day. And in that moment, God hits me between the eyes. God hits me between the eyes because I kind of gave you a little insight to where I'm coming from, where I was. I'm living in this space where I'm, I'm just frustrated by what's not happening. And God reveals to me in that moment, as I see them, 
for who they're becoming, for who they are in Christ. That I'm in, beyond the time that we spend in the car, lately, what I've been focusing on, the majority of my conversations with them are, how come you're not doing this? When are you going to follow up on that? How many times do I have to tell you to do this? And I realize in this moment, seeing them, God gives this to me, that I'm living by fear. I'm living by fear. And so God gets my attention and God says, stop living by fear. Look, look at these two kids. Look at these, these two children. Look at them as they're, who they're becoming, who they are, and stop living by fear. And God was so clear in that moment. I pray for my kids every day. I know you do too. To stop praying for my kids out of fear and pray in faith. And I did before I posted it to Facebook. I watched them. I stalked them. They're going to get all creeped out now. Great. <laughs> Awesome. Don't turn around. You'll see me like looking at you. <laughs> and I prayed in faith. That's a Kairos moment. Sometimes it hits us right between the eyes. Sometimes, though, we can be so distracted. Sometimes we can be so blinded by other things even that we don't even notice at first what's happening right in front of us. Another personal story. Just just keeping it real. I am in part of something called Curcio, which is a pilgrimage experience for men and women that you can participate here at Grace. I am the head spiritual director for the upcoming Women's Weekend, and that means I'm a part of a training that's been taking place for this weekend on these past Saturdays. And part of my responsibility yesterday was I had to give a little talk, a homily it's called, before we started out our day. And I um, was not a morning person. It's very early when they asked me to do this, which is just not fair. And I, it's tough. And I was very focused on what I was going to say. I had done some brilliant work, if I do say so myself. I had some very insightful things <laughs> to say. And driving there, God was just, just, I can't, just continually trying to get my attention. And at one point, literally in the car, I'm like, God, do you mind? Can we talk later? I'm a little busy here right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. I, I, I got to be in the zone here, Okay. And I get there and I'm with the leadership beforehand and they can tell I'm totally in another place because God is just continuing. And I, I literally in my head finally go, look, you called me to do this. I'm supposed to speak for you right now. So do you mind if you just give me a little space so I can prepare for what I'm going to do here? And I'm not kidding. God in that moment said, yeah, I'm totally fine. But do you mind if you would actually say what I want you to say rather than what you're planning on saying? And in that moment, they can tell you, I have index cards I always have with me. I literally wrote out what God told me to say, and I did. It was a Kairos moment. I'm sure that what I was going to share was brilliant. I'm sure it was great. <laughs> no question. But the response from people that morning was a response that I could not have anticipated, of things that I said that I didn't even realize I said, ways that I impacted what God was doing. God spoke through me. That happened because it was a Kairos moment, but I almost missed it because I was so distracted, I was so blinded. It can happen like that. And as we travel with Mark through the, and with the rest of the disciples, you're going to see that you're going to see all three of these responses to Kairos moments that happen when it, Jesus comes on the scene. You're going to see the same three. Some people you're going to see are going to head straight for Jesus. Bam. Other people are going to seemingly encounter him by chance. It's no coincidence. And then there'll be the people who don't get it. Who question. Not because they're seeking clarity, but they're questioning as a way of avoiding the truth about what time it is. They try, will try to put up roadblocks. They'll try to create distractions to slow Jesus down, to get away from God's agenda and back to their own timing of how things should be done. That's what we'll see. But what about us? 
Are we living according to our own agenda or are we sensitive to God's timing in our lives and in this world? How about us? Do we know what time it is? Beloved, we have to learn how to pay attention so that we can participate. We have to learn how to pay attention so that we can participate. And through Mark, we're going to learn. We are learning how to tell time by following Jesus. Jesus will show us, he'll teach us how to recognize and engage those divine appointments, how to make the most of the time we're given. And and the lesson that we can take away from right here from the verses Bill read for us is that one of the things we learn from Jesus through Mark is that kairos moments tend to come in two general shapes to better help us identify them. And the first thing is, Kairos moments are often moments of invitation. Jesus knew that his baptism was a Kairos moment. It was a moment of invitation. Something happened different than expected when Jesus came up out of the water. You heard it, the heavens were torn apart. The spirit descended upon him like a dove and Jesus heard a voice from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It is important, it was important before Jesus healed one person, before he preached one sermon, before he performed any miracle that he experienced and be reminded of God the Father's deep love for him. Beloved, this is no less true for us. Sometimes Kairos moments in our lives are moments of invitation. God shows up and looks to speak these same words into our life. God seeks to speak Words of truth spoken in love about our covenant identity. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Kairos moments are moments of invitation where God shows up with visible, tangible signs. Heaven being torn open. A dove. God's way more creative in terms of the ways in which he can visibly and tangibly give us signs to remind us, to affirm to us that we are his. That we are blessed that he is with us all the way. The thing is, is are we experiencing those kairos moments of invitation in our lives? Are we experiencing those kairos moments of invitation in our lives? Or are we working so hard to prove ourselves? Are we keeping so busy just trying to survive that we're missing our father's assurance his repeated assurance, his consistent assurance that who we are is not ultimately defined by what we do, by what we control, or even what others say about us. How often often are you encountering God's words? How often are we encountering God's signs of our belovedness? I'm seriously asking you this. Or how often are you not receiving these kairos moments of invitation to know who you truly are and whose you truly are? When's the last time you played like a kid in your father's kingdom? I know some of you are like, I'm not a kid. Yes, you are. The Bible says we are all children of God. Chronologically, you can be whatever age you want to call yourself. But biblically, we are all children of our heavenly father. So I ask you again, when's the last time you played like a kid in your father's kingdom? How often are you not just missing out on those moments with your kids or with your family, but with your Father in heaven to just play, to just be? When's the last time you entered into worship here or somewhere else and you really worshiped? You came into the living presence of God without letting Kronos time dictate things. I got places to go, people to see, things to do. 
When's the last time you really entered into that space of worship without letting Kronos time dictate things? Our Father is working and speaking into our lives, and those moments are moments of kairos, moments of invitation. But what we also see here in Mark is that kairos moments can also be moments of challenge as well. Jesus knew that his time in the Jordan was a kairos moment of invitation, but Jesus knew that those 40 days in the wilderness were a kairos moment too. I don't know about you. I would imagine after the incredible transformative experience of his baptism, Jesus would probably have preferred to go have some me time to go home and reflect on what just happened to him. I'm, I mean, I'm just saying, if it was me and I came out of the water and the heavens were torn open and a spirit, the spirit descended down and I heard a voice that said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. I mean, being human like the rest of us, don't you think Jesus would have preferred to take a little bit of time to bask in the blessing? To savor the invitation? You know, just get away for a day, a weekend, go up to the mountains. But pay attention to what Mark tells us here. Pay attention to what Mark tells us here. It's not as if Jesus chose the wilderness. After his baptism, Mark writes, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Beloved, the next Kairos moment for Jesus was waiting for him in the challenge of the wilderness. The next Kairos moment was waiting for him in the challenge of the wilderness. It was important before Jesus began his ministry that his entire being, his heart, mind, and soul fully aligned with who he was, what God was asking him to do. He had heard the words, but it's needed to really truly embrace those words, the challenge of those words. The invitation is one thing, the challenge is another. Was Jesus going to be the kind of Messiah that the world demanded? And when we read through Mark, you're going to hear all kinds of demands of what the Messiah should be. Or was Jesus going to be the kind of Messiah that his father called him to be? Beloved, when we fully step into the Kairos moments of invitation, when we step into those moments, the call to follow Jesus and become who we were always intended to be, there will be supporters around us. There will be blessings. There will be lots of affirmation of those Kairos moments of invitation. But there will also be moments of challenge. There will be inevitably resistance. There will be obstacles. There will be testing. And these challenges that are put before us are Kairos moments too. It's important because often in the Christian community, we live out of balance. A lot of times when we talk about God's timing or God showing up, it has to always just to do with the blessing. If we're blessed, God showed up. If good stuff happened, God showed up. If a window got opened, God showed up. If a door got opened, God showed up. Do you see the, the, the imbalance? If it's all good, then that's a Kairos moment. That's God showing up. But that's not biblical. Biblically, every moment Invitation or challenge is a kairos moment. We have a great praise song written just a couple years ago, and it's one of my favorites because it does what few praise songs do, which talks about the balance of this. Blessed be the name of the Lord, based on the book of Job. Blessed be the name of the Lord when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all that it should be. But blessed be the name of the Lord when it's not. Because, beloved, if you haven't experienced this yet, maybe you're going through it now, so hear the word of the Lord. If you're in a dry spell right now, that's a kairos moment. If you're in a barren place right now, that's a kairos moment. If you're going through what we've called in the history of the church, the dark night of the soul, that's a kairos moment. It's a kairos moment because it's just as much of an opportunity for God to show up, that not to, for God to show up, for you to realize that God is present with you in the wilderness, that God is with you in the midst of what you're facing. 
Because throughout the history of the Bible, the wilderness is the place where the people of God come face to face with fear. Fear is always on some level. We all have different fears that we can name, but if you really strip it down, fear is always on some level about death. Fear is about death. For some of us here today, going out into the wilderness, the Kairos moment of challenge is facing our fear of death literally. The death of our bodies, the end of our breathing, some part of our souls. The wilderness is the place where, some, where we come face to face with our fears. And so I ask us, what's the challenge? What's the Kairos moment that we're in right now? What do we fear? What variety of death has a stranglehold on our hearts that's chin-locking us in terror, bear-hugging us with doubt and insecurity? As I say, for some of us here today, that fear is very, very real. It hits very, very close to home because it's literally death. Because we've gotten a diagnosis, something has come back, or something just appeared that wasn't there before, and we look in the mirror and we see death looking back at us. We feel it in our bones and in our guts, the reality of it, the unknowingness of it, the, the seeming isolation of it. Some of us today are wrestling with death, literally. And the Kairos moment, the challenge is realizing not that death is not real, but that death does not get the last word in Christ. The death can terrify us, can scare us, but that fear is ultimately eclipsed by the promise, the certainty of resurrection, that our bodies are made new, that our, we do not, are not lost. We do not simply disappear and burn out and fade away, but in Christ, we live forever. Some of us, it's maybe not a literal fear of death, but it's still death the same because there's other kinds of death that we can fear in our lives. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe some of us today are fearing the loss of a job. Maybe it's something that's happened already or it's something that's inevitable. Some of us may be fearing the loss of our homes, the loss of our kids because they're going off to school or to marriage. Some of us may be feeling, fearing the loss of any kind of relationship. We may be fearing the loss of our future security. Fear is all about the what if. And we have to face our fears in Christ. We have to see those moments of challenge as Kairos moments because it's only when we face our fears in Christ that we can recognize and receive his perfect love that casts out all fear. If we ignore our fears, if we cast them aside, if we pretend they don't exist, we can't know and experience the perfect love of Christ that conquers every fear that casts out every fear. Another way to put this is that sometimes it is in the experience of the famine that we truly appreciate the feast. Because, beloved, the challenge of the wilderness, it, what it does is it broadens our horizon to the bigger picture of what our Father is doing. I want to be really clear what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to make light of anything that you're afraid of. I have my own fears too. I also have my challenges in the wilderness. I'm not making light of anything. But even for myself, I can say that sometimes we get so paralyzed by our fear, we refuse to face the challenge, to see it as a kairos moment. We get caught up in the chronos, the cyclical nature of it, that we've eventually become so fixated on that fear that we become overwhelmed by the mundane, the minutia. We get caught up in the trivial. And it's not to say that stuff isn't important. It's not real, that it's not scary what we're dealing with now. But what we lose sight of is that those things that we're struggling with that are strangling us in the now look very, very different from the viewpoint of eternity. Doesn't mean they're not real. Doesn't mean they don't hurt. Doesn't mean they don't scare us to death. 
But even if they scare us to death, eternity says we will be resurrected even if we face our fears, when we face our fears. Because Christ is risen, we can actually live our lives with him. But this is something that has to be learned. This is something that has to be practiced. This is discipleship. We have to, we have to learn how to pay attention to what time it is in Christ. Otherwise, what we do is we walk through life asleep. We walk through life asleep to what the Irish call the thin places, the spaces where God is moving and acting in our world that are there all the time. Moments that, that long in their invitation and their challenge to usher us into the deeper reality of God's kingdom, of his truth, his love, his grace, his peace, all these things that scripture speaks of. But in order to enter into those deeper places, we have to learn how to tell time. Brendan Manning wrote, wrote this phenomenal book, Abba's Child, and he puts it like this. All day and every day, we are being reshaped into the image of Christ. Everything that happens to us is designed to this end. Nothing that exists is beyond the pale of his presence. He quotes Colossians. All things were created through him and for him. And then adds, nothing is irrelevant to it. Nothing is without significance in it. Everything that comes alive comes alive in the risen Christ. Everything, great, small, important, unimportant, distant, and near, has its place, its meaning, and its value. Through our union with him, nothing is wasted. Nothing is missing. There is never a moment that does not carry eternal significance. Beloved, we have to learn how to pay attention in order to participate. I shared with you last week, we have a new vision and mission statement. The vision's on the front right here. If you were to look at your bulletin, and I told you as we go through this series, I'm going to come back to it. All I want you to look at is the very first word in our vision, engaging. That word is intentional. We want to engage life. We want to not just pass through life. We want to engage the Kairos moments, the reality that our God is speaking and working and acting all the time. And we want to learn to tell time like that. We want to engage what God is saying and doing in this world. And that's why our mission statement starts with engaging life. Not just living life, engaging it. As followers of Jesus, beloved, we exist in two time zones. The temporal, the chronos, the clock time, and the, the eternal, the kairos, the kingdom time. And while there's no escape in chronos time, make no mistake, there's no escaping it. As disciples of Jesus, that's not how we mark the time in which we live. We don't mark it by the clock, we mark it by the kingdom. As sons and daughters of the never-ending reign of our Father's kingdom, we are experiencing the fullness of time. That's the invitation, to experience the fullness of time, and that's also the challenge. Instead of chasing time or running out of it, we learn to recognize those moments when heaven is breaking into earth, when the spirit of the living God is showing up. And it's in the discovery of those moments that we encounter Jesus. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Do you know him? Not the idea of Jesus, not the stories about Jesus. Do you know the person of Jesus Christ? Because it's in those Kairos moments that we discover, we encounter Jesus. We taste eternity and we realize something profound, something life-changing. We realize that we have all the time we need. Hear that this morning. 
we have all the time we need. In Christ, we have all the time we need to learn and practice what love really looks like. You struggle with the Bible talking of this perfect love that casts out fear, this divine love. What does that look like? I can't seem to grasp it, experience it, model it, reflect it in my own life. Fear not, wrestle away. You have all the time you need to learn and to practice what this kind of love in Christ looks like. In Jesus, we have all the time we need to appreciate and share the gifts the Spirit has given us. Some of us are still, are still thrown back from the fivefold ministry sermon series. Am I an apostle? Am I a prophet? I don't know what I am. I don't know what gifts I have. I'm so confused. How do I, what am I supposed to, I'm even more confused than I was before. Don't fight the confusion. Recognize the God who brings order out of chaos. Recognize that in the midst of the gifts that the Spirit has given you, the role that you've called to, the destiny that you have in Christ, you have all the time you need to appreciate and experience and share the gifts that the Father has given you, the role he has called you to to bless others. Beloved, with Christ, in Christ, the moments we have, the moments we share are never fleeting. They're never accidental. They're connected to each other. They build upon each other. Every moment in Christ is opportune and decisive. What time is it? It's the time that the kingdom has come. It's time to let Christ have his way in our lives and in this world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.